Let me pray for the reading and preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, you you said in your word that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we want to come to your word this morning with an appropriate sense of fear, not terror, but reverence and awe, submission to your authority, an inclining of our hearts to your word so that we might be directed in our ways, that we might be taught to keep to the paths that you have laid out for us in faith and obedience, so that in the end, preserved by Christ, we might arrive safely at our destination, a better country, a heavenly country, home with you. Use your word, Father, to guide, to chasten, and encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Starting in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. 
From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Before the widespread use of uh, GPS and turn-by-turn navigation, uh, drivers had to learn the roads, right? They had to learn uh, or use maps. They had to read signs on the roads to get to where they need to go. Uh, and, And of course, even now, there are times when the GPS information is not up to date. Uh, For example, uh, many moving truck drivers, I guess the GPS doesn't take this into account, Uh, many moving truck drivers have blindly followed their GPS into a tunnel or under a bridge without paying attention to the low clearance sign and cleaved off the top of their trucks. Uh, Some years ago, it was reported that people going through uh, Luckington, England, follow their GPS devices and ignore the bridge-closed sign driving straight into the water below. And then another instance, the driver in Switzerland blindly followed the GPS and ignored the footpath-only sign, eventually ending up on the top of a mountain so that he had to get airlifted with his car into safety. And so all these examples teach us that uh, despite improvements in the navigation system, it's important to pay attention to the road to read the signs. And today's passage relies heavily on this metaphor of the way, the straight way of the righteous. And it contrasts it with the crooked way of the wicked. And it teaches us that those who wish to inhabit the land of God should walk in the way of the Lord. And it gives us signposts, road signs that we need to pay attention to to navigate safely through this journey and arrive at our eternal destination. And so using that as a key, we're going to talk about three points. First, command and message is beware, hazards ahead. Second, repent, do a U-turn. Third, lastly, receive, keep straight on the path of obedience. And so first, let's look at the warnings of verses 8 to 19 of chapter 1. Beware, hazards ahead. It's a parental warning about the hazards that lie in a youth's life. It begins in verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. The address in chapters 1 to 9 is given in the voice of a father, who is the primary teacher in the home. Uh, But even though he's the main speaker, we see here that wisdom he imparts also includes the mother's teaching. And a son is, is mentioned as an addressee, but this son here is never specifically named. Because, as we talked about last week, Proverbs is democratized to include all of God's people. So the Proverbs are placed in the mouths of every God-fearing parent so that it can be passed down to the next generation. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, when God renews His covenant with His people, Moses says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Scripture places the primary responsibility for the spiritual and moral instruction of children on their parents. So Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 also charges fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not the government that is primarily responsible. It's not the schools that are primarily responsible. It's not even the church that is primarily responsible. It's the fathers and mothers. And I think one reason why fatherhood and motherhood are, are so depreciated nowadays is that we've lost this glorious and weighty vision for what parenting looks like. If all that parents have to do is feed their kids so that they, and, and make sure that they grow up and get jobs so that they can provide for themselves, if that's all we have to do, we really don't have to be involved that much. You can pay people with degrees in child development to take care of our kids. We can pay for teachers who are better educated or more specialized in their learning to teach our kids. But that's not all that parents are good for. Proverbs is said in the context of the home instruction because that's the primary space in which spiritual and moral education of our children takes place. And the father's instruction and mother's teaching, uh, if heeded, are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. It says in verse 9, a graceful garland refers to the decorative wreath that they would crown, uh, they would use to crown champions in, in a competition. Uh, and the pendants refer to these chain necklaces that were used in the investiture of office. When you appoint someone to an authoritative role, an official position, you give them this chain necklace. And in the ancient Near Eastern world and in other parallel literature, this, these things symbolize guidance and protection. So then the garland and pendants are symbols of power, prestige, protection. And for the person who heeds the teachings of Proverbs, the father's instruction and the mother's teaching become these, this, what provides guidance, protection for them. Uh, and so it's something, wisdom of God is not something that you just leave behind. It's something you wear at all times and so that it protects and guides us. And after this brief invitation, the father dives right into his warnings, starting in verse 10. Says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Sin, the word sin means to miss a mark, uh, to fall short of something. And so in biblical context, it means to miss the mark of God's standard, to fall short of his glorious standard. And the father anticipates what these sinners' enticement will sound like in verses 11 to 12. He says, if they say... Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. It's, uh, if you think about these words, if you reflect on it a little more, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, ridiculous that they're tempting this person this way. Who would come to this kind of invitation? Uh, because it's really not that appealing. First, it's, they admit that their victim is innocent. Second, they admit that their crime is without reason. It's senseless. And third, they compare themselves to Sheol, which is the realm of the dead. They compare themselves to death. Bringing people down to the pit, the grave. And fourth, they seek to swallow their victims alive and whole. Right? It's an expression that conveys this kind of ravenous, uh, barbaric appetite of maybe a person, for example, that consumes a whole chicken with innards and bones all alike. They're voracious for blood. And of course, when sinners are trying to entice people, they don't usually, they're not usually this forthcoming, but the Father is trying to expose the ugly reality underneath the enticement of sinners. This is in fact what their enticement is calling you to, son. That's what the Father is saying. And they continue their pitch to sinners in verses 13 to 14. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throwing your lot among us, we will all have one purse. 
the way of sin offers a get-rich-quick scheme that goes outside the bounds of the law, while the way of wisdom offers a grow-wealth-steadily plan within the bounds of the law. The way of sin offers the thrill of secretly plotting a criminal activity, while the way of wisdom offers the satisfaction of honest hard work. The way of sin offers the companionship of sinners. Come with us. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. While the way of wisdom offers the fellowship of the saints. And if you've ever been tempted by this thrill of wrongdoing or the prospect of easy money and the camaraderie of sinners, then hear this warning in verses 15 to 16. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Right? In verse 11, the sinners beckon, come with us, but the Father says, do not walk in the way with them. Since the sinners' feet run to evil, the Son should instead hold back his foot from their paths. And then verses 17 to 18 give the reason uh, for this warning with a humorous comparison. It says, for in vain is the net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Notice the repetition of the same words that were used earlier in verse 11. Sinners set an ambush and lay in wait for blood, the blood of their victims. But verse 18 says that these men, in fact, lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. This makes the way of sinners not only wicked, but also stupid. Fowlers don't use their traps in the sight of birds. Because even normal birds, I mean, isn't that, like a, isn't that a derogatory term? Someone is bird-brained, right? Even, even birds don't run into nets that, that fowlers spread in their sight. They're not going to run, they fly into something that they see these suspicious men put up. But this is worse because it's telling us that these sinners are dumber than birds. They set their own traps and then they walk into it. Scripture is teaching us that there is a clear and inescapable connection between sin and death. You might escape punishment for a little while, but divine justice always arrives. So don't ever think that you can flirt with sin without courting death itself. We've all seen kind of maybe immature young men and women flirt with death for the thrill of adventure, maybe to get a spectacular selfie that they can share with people. Uh, let's see how close we can get to the edge of this cliff on the Grand Canyon and take a picture. Let's see how close we can get to this bear in the Yellowstone so we could take a selfie with it. These are examples, but literal you know, examples of these things have happened. People have, people have died trying, to, attempting those feats. And that's precisely what sin is like. It's a bloodthirsty ambush that is after our very lives, our souls, and yet we make light of it, flirt with it, embrace it, intoxicate ourselves with it, and we're ultimately killed by it. The wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says. There's no way around it. So verse 19 summarizes it this way. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Those who are greedy for unjust, unjust gain, those who are possessive, greedily possessive, will not possess their own lives for long. And that's the warning of this first section. Beware hazards ahead. And then in verses 20 to 33, for those who already find themselves in the thick of the hazards of life, there's a call to repent, to do a U-turn. And here Solomon personifies wisdom to make his point. It says in verses 20 to 21, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates she speaks. Since wisdom is the experiential knowledge of navigating the realities of life, it's applied knowledge, 
We're not surprised to find Lady Wisdom here beckoning the simple to come and learn in the public square and not in the ivory tower. In social interactions on the streets, it mentions the streets, in commercial dealings in the markets, and in civil and political proceedings at the city gates, wisdom is present and calls out for a hearing. And she says in verse 22, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? The repetition of the expression, how long, highlights the Lady Wisdom's exasperation. It's already been happening for a while. She's been calling out to these simple people to learn, but they have not heeded her instruction. So she asks, how long? When will you finally listen to me? And Lady Wisdom uses three different words to refer to her audience. First, the simple. Second, the scoffers. And third, fools. These words all refer to the same group of people, but they highlight different aspects of foolishness. First, the simple refer to the gullible and naive. Proverbs 14.15 says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. The simple are not thoughtful or careful. They are thoughtless and careless. They are often duped, scammed. And second, the scoffers refer to those who are too prideful to listen to or submit to anyone else's instruction. They have an overinflated confidence of their own opinions, in their own opinions. They're immune to correction. They never change their minds on issues. Proverbs 21, 24 says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Scoffers sigh and, and sneer and, and arch their eyebrows and say snarky things. They delight in their scoffing. And they enjoy it. It makes them feel better about themselves and superior to other people. Then they appear to be intelligent and sophisticated to much of the world. But in reality, they are fools. And third, that's the final word, fools. How long will fools hate knowledge? Fools are ignorant. They hate knowledge. Notice the contrast between how they love being simple and hate knowledge. They've made a decisive choice between naivete and wisdom. Between ignorance and knowledge, they have chosen, not, cho chosen ignorance. And this hatred of knowledge is further described in verse 29 this way, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Biblically speaking, a fool is someone who is ignorant about God, and therefore insolent toward God, rude toward Him. A synonym for this word fool is used in Psalm 14.1 and defined this way, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is the essence of foolishness. And it underlies, it's at the root of all kinds of foolishness, foolishness, the simple, the scoffers, and the fools. They all have it in common. It's not referring to people with low IQs. They may have very high IQs, yet their deficiency is, is in their heart's orientation toward God. And wisdom laments this situation in verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you, I will make my words known to you. The conditional statement conveys wisdom's longing. If only you would heed my rebuke and turn around the things that I will do for you. The word turn is a translation of the Hebrew word that's most often translated as return or to repent, to do a U-turn in your life. And if you're not following God and living for God right now, just recalibrating it a little bit to get rid of a vice here and there and to maybe break a habit or two is not going to cut it. You need a radical and complete reorientation of your life, and that's what repentance means. As Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's by turning from our sins in repentance and turning toward faith in Jesus Christ that we receive the Word of God and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's how we cultivate the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. 
But unfortunately, instead of fearing the Lord and receiving God's wisdom into their hearts, uh, they stubbornly, uh, this group of fools, they turn a deaf ear to the call of wisdom. And so it says in verses 24 to 25, Because I have called, and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand, and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. This is the reason they haven't listened. The image of wisdom kind of stretching out her hand to grab the attention of the simple is a graphic portrayal of this rejection of wisdom. I mean, you can think about it. It's embarrassing, right, when you reach out for a handshake or for a high five and then you're left hanging by your friends. Uh, It's embarrassing even when you know that they didn't mean to do that. But that's, in fact, what fools do to the reach of wisdom. They snub and spurn wisdom. And this is the reason that because they have spurned wisdom, that these following consequences will take place. Verses 26 to 27. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. First, it says, I also will laugh at your calamity. That's expanded by the parallel. I will mock when terror strikes you. This is not a cold-hearted gloating over the perishing of evildoers. Rather, it's the laughter of triumph. It's the final step of victory. It's really poetic justice because... That's what, in fact, the fools did to wisdom. They laughed at wisdom. They delighted in their scoffing, as it said in verse 22. So their fitting fate is that they themselves become objects of derision. It's wisdom that gets the final laugh. And then the next two lines predict that terror like a storm and calamity like a whirlwind will come. These represent uh, these sudden kind of destructive disasters. And this poetic justice that comes upon the fools, uh, it's highlighted, highlighted by uh, the parallel structure between verses 20, 27 and verses 28 to 31. I can show that for you on the screen. There's an alternating uh, pattern. And the highlighted words uh, that are on the screen are exact verbal parallels. First, wisdom calls out to the fools and it asks, when will you stop hating knowledge? You spurn counsel and despise reproof. And then finally says, you will get what is coming to you. And then that exact pattern repeats. It says, the fools now call out to wisdom, because, but because they hated knowledge, because they spurned counsel and despised reproof, they will get what is coming to them. This structure conveys the basic idea that, that just as fools once spurned wisdom, at the time of final judgment, wisdom will spurn the fools. And notice the abrupt shift in the use of personal pronouns. In verses 20 to 27, wisdom uses the second person pronoun to refer to the fools. It addresses them directly. But in the second half, verses 28 to 31, wisdom uses the third person pronoun to refer to them. And this shift creates a sense of distance between wisdom and fools in the second half. At first, wisdom was up close and personal in your face, inviting you to repent. But later, she is distant. When they call upon her, wisdom does not answer. She's nowhere to be found. Can you guys hear me? (laughs) I feel like wisdom calling out and nobody's listening. It's a... (laughs) You guys should have said something. <laughs> and, uh, man, that was an important point I was about to get to, too. It's, a theological, it's an important theological point, right? It always calls us to repent today, right? Why does the Bible emphasize that point? Because the window of opportunity, the hour of salvation is now. It's this very moment. It's not tomorrow. It's today. And wisdom's invitation is the same. It's wisdom will not stretch out her hand to you indefinitely. And this is why we need to... uh, (laughs) I'm usually not a funny uh, preacher, so I'm glad I can at least provide accidental entertainment. Uh, 
I mean, I think too many people say uh, to themselves, you know, man, after I grow up and become an adult, then I will really follow God, serve Him. After I've graduated, then finally I will serve God when I'm less busy. Or after I've earned enough money, or after I have worked hard and climbed the corporate ladder and have a stable, stable position in my workplace, then I will believe in God and serve Him and follow Him. After I've retired, I will do this. After I've traveled the world, I will believe in God and follow Him and serve Him. After my kids are grown, then I will finally love God with my whole heart and believe in Him and serve Him. But the reality is, you might not have tomorrow. The day of salvation is today, not tomorrow. Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 9 says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Today is the day of salvation. And even for those of you who already follow God, this is an important point to remember. Today, are you doing everything you can to incline your ears, the ears of your heart, toward the wisdom of God? Are you doing everything you can today to stoke the fire of faith in your life? Because that's important and that is necessary for your ultimate perseverance. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 15 says, Take care, brothers, speaking to brothers and sisters, believers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If we do not hold our original confidence to the end, if we don't persevere in our faith in God to the end, we will not obtain our final salvation. So we can't act like Faith happens naturally and keep it on the back burner while we attend to more important things in our lives. Casual faith is a dangerous pastime. Satan is at work today. The hardening effect of sin is in operation today. And unless we exhort one another as long as it is called today to love and good works, to faith, We're not going to persevere till the end. Church is not something you attend once a week. It's not a service. It's the people of God, the family of God that you interact with on your, on a, in your daily lives. So if, if, you, if you see people that are in this auditorium right now just once a week on Sunday morning, you're not obeying Hebrews chapter 3. And I encourage you, to get plugged into a community group. Come to our prayer services on Wednesdays. Ask a brother or sister to meet one-on-one for a Bible study or prayer. Get involved. Speak the truth and love to each other. That's how we get built up as the body of Christ. We cannot persevere without it. Just as muscles that are not exercised regularly weaken The faith that is not exercised daily will weaken. And the gospel that seems so real to you will gradually become increasingly improbable and irrelevant and unreal. That's the hardening effect of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. And the voice of wisdom will sound more and more distant and muted. And soon, that extended hand of wisdom will be retracted. Verses 32 to 33 summarize this section this way. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. 
But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Only those who listen to the wisdom of Christ can have true security. And any alternative forms of security or experience of peace, they're mere complacency, a sense of false security. And so if your life is characterized by turning away from God, as it says in this verse, you must repent, turn toward God, to the path that leads to eternal life. And finally, how to get on that path and stay on that path is the subject of chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. And that's my third point. Receive, keep straight. Verses 1 to 4 introduce this section with a series of conditions. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you, make, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, yes, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, this contrast the fool that refused to listen. Instead, we should receive and incline our hearts to listen, to be attentive to wisdom. And we need to go beyond that, not just receive passively. We need to also be proactive. We need to be receptive, but also proactive. It says in verses 3 to 4, we should be calling out for wisdom, just as wisdom called out to us and raised her voice in the streets. In verses 20 to 21, we are to call out for insight and raise our voices for understanding. And we're to seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Finding silver and precious jewels or gold it's, that's hidden away, or it, it's difficult. It takes a lot of work. It takes commitment and dedication. In the same way, we work hard to earn money and to save money and to protect money. We should seek God's wisdom and store it up as treasure in our hearts. And verses, so verses 1 to 4 gave the conditions, and verses 5 to 11, 11 give the consequences. If you treasure wisdom, two parallel things will happen. First, it says in verses 5 to 8, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. And the second a parallel consequence is in verses 9 to 11. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you. The fear of the Lord only comes to those who seek God. Wisdom only comes into the hearts of those who cherish it. The knowledge of God here is not merely referring to an acknowledgement of Him, but actually actual experience of Him and allegiance to Him. It's not merely theoretical knowledge, but experiential knowledge. It's a personal knowledge of God, knowing Him. And this knowledge of God is parallel to the fear of the Lord. It means we stand in awe of Him, revere Him, submit to Him, and obey Him. And it's only when we have this fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God we can rightly apprehend and apply the book of Proverbs. That's why the thesis of the book, which we discussed last week in verse 7 of chapter 1, is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We don't begin to get wise until we submit to God, until we humble ourselves before Him. And it's that knowledge of God, that humble faith before God, that relationship with God that we ought to pursue and seek and cherish because humility and receptivity precede understanding. Faith precedes sight. If we want to receive divine wisdom, we must have faith enough to ask God for it and to seek it from Him. Because, as verse 6 says, ultimately it is the Lord who gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. This reveals an important point. We don't take wisdom. We don't seize wisdom for ourselves or earn it. Rather, wisdom is bestowed by God freely as a gift. I hope you notice the tension there between those two ideas. On the one hand, we are commanded to seek diligently for wisdom. But on the other hand, we're told that wisdom is given freely by God. 
This is a paradox that we find all throughout Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13 commands, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then it immediately adds, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We have to work hard for our own salvation because it is God who is working in and through us. Tim Keller comments on this paradoxical idea this way. If it were all up to us, we would labor under crushing anxiety and burnout. But if God only worked apart from us, we would lose all sense of initiative. The paradox gives us enough incentive and enough assurance to pursue the knowledge of God all our life long. If wisdom is a reward for the acquisitive mind, those who attain it would become prideful and they would, uh, would look down on people who have not attained it. But if it is a gift, we, have, we can't help but be humble and receptive. If wisdom is given to those who neither seek nor believe, then those who observe that would become passive and apathetic. But because God gives wisdom to those who believe in Him, pursue Him, and seek Him, it motivates us to strive daily to believe and obey Him. And when we receive this wisdom from God, it watches over us and guards us. And those pair, that pair of words are repeated in verse 8 and in verse 11. It becomes wisdom for us, a shield to those who walk in integrity. When we keep the commandments of God, the commandments of God start to keep us, to protect us and to guide us. But how exactly are we being kept and what exactly are we being kept from, being guarded from? And we see that in verses 12 to 15 and 16 to 19. First, it tells us in 12 to 15 that we are being guarded from perverse men and then, secondly, in verses 16 to 19, it tells us that wisdom guards us from, adult, from the adulterous woman. First, it tells us that wisdom will guard us from perverse men. It says, delivering you, verses 12 to 15, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So perversity is a recurring theme here. It refers to uh, waywardness, a willful determination to go contrary to what is expected or demanded of you. It's rebellion. These men have forsaken, it says, abandoned the paths of uprightness. The word forsake is often used to refer to people who abandon their covenant relationship with God to apostates, people who apostatize. Second, verses 16 to 19 tells that wisdom will guard us from the adulterous woman, or if you're a woman, from the adulterous man. He says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her path to the departed. None who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life. Just as perverted men were described as people who forsook their covenant with God, so this adulterous woman is described as someone who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And verse 19 says, None who go to her come back, nor do they gain, regain the paths of life. The word go is, is, it's a double, has a double meaning. In Hebrew, it literally means to enter into. The adulterous woman becomes the casket for any man who enters into her. And notice also this focus on, in both of those passages on the words of enticement. Verse 12 spoke of the man's perverted speech. That's how they lead people straight through their perverted speech. And verse 16, likewise, speaks of the woman's smooth words. This is somewhat surprising because we might expect the son to be enticed by the adulterous woman's sexual allure, her physical attractiveness. 
But instead, the primary mode that we see here is the mode of her temptation is words. This draws an interesting contrast, an intentional contrast between the Father's words of wisdom that we are to store up and the words of the perverse men and the smooth words of the adulteress. Words are important because whenever there is a temptation, whenever sin is involved, there are words being spoken. Satan is being is is speaking to people as he's the liar and the accuser as the Bible defines him. Whether the temptation involves your eyes or your minds or your hands or your mouth, every temptation comes with words. It whispers to our souls, God is withholding something from you. God does not have your best interest in mind. You should take this for yourself. God does not see You will escape this unscathed. You are your own master. Do what pleases you. These are the words of Satan that always accompanies temptation. But they are lies. They're not true. Our God is a loving Heavenly Father. All His ways are good. And the only way to dispel these words of the enemy is to drown them out with the word of God. That's why this chapter began with this series of conditional statements. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, that's the only way we drown out the words of the enemy. And nothing less than your very soul is at stake. This is the battle for souls. Whose voices are louder in your head? Which words occupy your heart more? You probably noticed already that there's a dozen or more words and phrases that are connected to the metaphor of the way in this last section. And that repetition uh, teaches us that there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live and that there is no middle way. The word upright or straight is, is repeated four times in verses 7, 9, 13, and 21 in this passage. It's contrasted with the crooked paths and the devious ways of evildoers. There is no neutral ground. You're either going straight or you're being led astray. And the word path used in verse 9 and the word ways in verse 15 are actually the same Hebrew words. And they refer to the grooves or tracks that form on the ground when you and you repeatedly, I guess, wheel a car through it. The longer you stay on those same tracks, the grooves get deeper, and eventually they dry and harden, so that it becomes nearly impossible to extricate yourself from those grooves. That's where that expression comes from, to be in a rut. A one-off sin becomes an occasional sin, becomes a habitual sin, And it becomes an obsessive, compulsive sin that controls you. Conversely, obedience begets more obedience. At first, it's difficult and takes great discipline. But then it becomes more and more natural. Which rut are you in? Only those who stay on the way of the Lord, the tracks of the Lord will arrive at and dwell in the land of the Lord. Verses 20 to 22 summarize this entire passage. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. The land in Old Testament times referred primarily to the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1, God said, Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The promised land in Scripture is intimately connected to the idea of life, the life that God promises. And being in the land meant that you were under God's good graces and that the presence of God dwelled in your midst. And that promise of 
the, the promised land foreshadows and ultimately is fulfilled by the land of promise that Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 to 16 speaks of. It calls it a heavenly country. The earthly promised land was a mere shadow. It was a type of the heavenly promised land to come. And in the New Testament, the idea of being in the land, being in God's favor, is superseded by this all-important phrase of being in Christ. When his disciples asked him about the way to heaven, Jesus replied to them in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some of you feel like you are in a rut. You feel your inability to change, bring change in your life. You feel powerless to save yourself. Some of you are stuck in a rut, but you don't know it. The wheels are still turning, so you think you're still in control. But in fact, you have no control. You're going headlong in the wrong direction. The truth is, all of us are, were at one point stuck in a rut and unable to free ourselves from the way of sin and death. I don't know if you've ever skidded on the road, on the highway, or veered off the highway, got into an accident. Unfortunately, I have. And it's a scary experience to lose control entirely of the steering wheel and to be completely at the mercy of the vehicle's momentum. That's exactly what this passage is describing about the life, the way of sin. And that's why, because we are helpless to save ourselves in that situation, that God the Father sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that He could dwell among us, and then He bore our sin on His back and died on the cross. He took our place. In essence, He took our wayward wagons and took it to its conclusion, to the end of the journey, and faced the death that we deserved that was waiting for us on that path. And then He was raised from the dead. He reversed course for humanity. And it set the tracks for us to follow so that all those who put their trust in Jesus renounce their sinful ways and say, no, I want, I'm done living for my, myself. I am renouncing my independence and my own sovereignty. And I'll follow God and I want to walk on His path. All those people can follow Him to inhabit that land. To get to that better country that awaits all of God's people. That's why only those who turn to Jesus in faith will arrive at their destination. Please take a moment to reflect on that truth. Where are you on this journey of life? What path are you on? And after you've reflected and prayed a bit, we're going to respond by praying together as a church.